So we are in Jeremiah, and I think we finished 11 last time. And what was happening at the end of 11 is Jeremiah is a priest, and he's from the region or the town of Anathoth, and he is complaining because his compatriots from Anathoth are plotting against him. So he's feeling a bit poorly used, that people who should be his allies in the Lord are in fact working against him. And I will gently suggest that one of the things that happens is any group that has power, if a member of that group goes against the group, then the group will turn on him. So Jeremiah is speaking the word of the Lord correctly, and you've got the priests of Anathoth who are part of the power structure, and one of the things that we've been reading about over and over again is how the power structure in Israel is totally corrupt. So even though it's his hometown, and even though he's speaking the word of the Lord, his erstwhile companions and friends and family are in fact turning against him and trying to destroy him. And that is perfectly in line with what's been happening all the way through Jeremiah up to this point, where God has said through Jeremiah that the entire power structure of Israel is corrupt. Chapter 12 is now a continuation of that situation. Since I started in 21, let me just, 1121. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left, for I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. Chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. So this is Jeremiah now responding to God. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them up like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. So we had the vignette at the end of 11 where God said he's going to do judgment on those of Anathoth who enjoin Jeremiah from preaching. Jeremiah then responds and says, God... How come these wicked people are, in fact, doing well? In verse 2 and a half, you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. So what he's saying is, these people talk the talk. But they don't walk the walk, and so even though they speak the words of God and speak in swelling spiritual oration, in fact, their actions don't match. Just like politicians in every age where they stand up and they wave the flag and they talk about motherhood and apple pie and all that kind of stuff, and in the back room, they 
sell orphans for a penny. That's what's going on here. The rhetoric and the actions don't match. Then he says, you know me, and you see my heart towards you. This is Jeremiah speaking. And he's saying, put them out like sheep for the slaughter. In other words, as this stuff comes down, put them right in front so they're the first ones to go. And then four is where I want to camp out just a minute. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? What's going on in Israel at this point is there is drought and there's famine. God's turned off the rain. And he's turned off the rain because of the behavior of the leadership of Israel. And so what Jeremiah is saying is, how long is the land going to suffer for the behavior of these people? And I will gently suggest that the United States is entering into a, and has been in, another drought for quite a while. I had talked to a friend of mine who does grain, and he says the winter wheat crop is in real trouble. The whole Midwest is in drought. I asked him to buy me some winter wheat, and he can't find any. So I will gently suggest that God is not pleased with us either. And one of God's responses when he gets upset is he turns the rain off. Back to verse 4. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. In other words, God isn't watching us. So they say God isn't watching us. And part of the reason that they're saying God isn't watching us is because we're prospering. So the reason that they are behaving the way they are behaving is because they have come to the opinion that God isn't paying any attention and God isn't exacting any retribution for their behavior. And because they don't think God is watching, they feel free to let their evil hearts run free. And the reason that they do that is because they're prospering. This this all starts with Jeremiah saying, God, why are these people prospering? And the people who are prospering in their evil are saying, huh, we're doing all right here. Doesn't look like God cares. We can do whatever we want. The prosperity isn't theirs, it's prosperity of previous generations. And Jeremiah said that in a previous chapter. That what they're doing is they're consuming the stored wealth that was built up during all the years of righteousness. And that's exactly what we're doing in the United States. We've had a couple hundred years where people behaved more or less righteously and did their best to follow God, and we built up tremendous wealth during that period. And now we have a generation that sees all that wealth and says, huh, why don't I just spend that all on me? And they have not only spent all of that previous wealth, they've also spent all of the wealth that has been stored up in the world for several generations. Verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So this is a continuation of the problems he's having with his relatives and brothers in the line of Anatoth. The comment here. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, where you are right now ain't so tough. 
how are you going to handle it when things really get difficult, is what that's saying. The guys that you're racing with on foot, who are your relatives who are out to get you, are basically nothing compared to the Babylonians who are on their way down. And if you can't handle a little persecution in the land of Israel under Israelites, how are you going to handle the Babylonian army? That's sort of the sense of that, if you will. Quit whining. And furthermore, don't trust your brothers in the house of your father because they are being treacherous and they are out to get you. And they may speak friendly words to you, but don't believe them. Verse 7. This, I believe, is still God. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. That's something that God can do. My heritage, and remember, when he says my heritage, remember it in, I think it's Exodus, when they come out, God says, Israel is my inheritance, my portion. So that's one of the reasons I think this is God. So I have forsaken my house, I have abandoned my heritage, I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. So... Israel, that I have nurtured all of these centuries, has bitten the hand that's fed it. Nine. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. Remember, Jeremiah said at the beginning of the chapter, how long is the land going to suffer because of the wicked behavior of the leadership of Israel? So then God, in his response down here, in verse 10, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. So the behavior of the leadership of Israel has made the garden of the Lord desolate, is what he's saying. And he's not pleased. Verse 13, they have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So they have tired themselves but profit nothing. In other words, they're working the land, they're, they're doing agriculture, they're doing business, and it isn't getting them anything. In fact, one of the places, Jeremiah, when you go after idols, it's like a leaky cistern was, I think, the metaphor that Jeremiah used. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Again, we've shifted now. He's been talking about the leadership of Israel, who is corrupt, and he's not happy with that. What he's now going to do is turn to the surrounding nations, and he's going to say, I am dealing with my people, best you not interfere. When you see them going into captivity and so forth, you best not pile on, which is in fact what happens, or I will deal with you. And, and of course they do, and that's, for example, the subject of the book of Obadiah, where God says, 
when I was dealing with my people, Israel, Edom made it worse. And so now I'm going to go ahead and deal with Edom. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. The sense here is, I'm fixing to deal with Israel. It's going to get really bad for them. The temptation of all the nations around there are going to be, ooh, free loot, and come in and despoil the place and make the situation worse. God is saying, I'm dealing with them. I'm going to have compassion on them. I'm going to put them back. And you shouldn't get involved in this in any way whatsoever. Because if you do, I'm going to be upset with you. And I'll pluck you up. 13. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist. And do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in the cleft of a rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled, it was good for nothing." The word there, which is translated Euphrates, is Peroth. In the Tanakh, it says, go at once to Peroth and take there the loincloth and so forth. Peroth is apparently, with different vowel pointing, either a name for the Euphrates River or it is a town with a wadi north of Jerusalem. Vowel pointing is all that's different. One of the commentaries I read said that the closest point on the Euphrates is Carchemish, which is north of present-day Syria in the south of Turkey. So that's straight north. The Euphrates starts up there around Carchemish and then goes down to the Persian Gulf. So when it says go to the Euphrates, it doesn't mean necessarily go to Babylon. It's go probably... Colorado, New Mexico kind of thing. So there are commentaries that say, oh, okay, the vowel pony just messed up here. It's really talking about this place where there's a rocky wadi and the things that are done would be easily described. Anyway, do that whatever you want. So, depending on the translation, the Tanakh says loincloth of linen. The American Standard says a linen girdle, sash. So it's a piece of linen worn around the waist, it could either be underwear, which is to say intimate, or it could be a sash, which is not so intimate. If it is a sash and if it is of linen, it's probably speaking of the priesthood. This is a symbolic act that he's doing, right? Sort of like when Ezekiel is in Babylon, 
where he's told to lay on one side and cook his food and dung and you know he's doing symbolic stuff. So so's Jeremiah here. So I can think of a couple of interpretations. I have no idea what what's right. I'll start off by saying that I don't know. One is if it's underwear and it's linen underwear, then he's making a comment on the priesthood. If it's a girdle, the idea is as long as the girdle is bound around the waist, it's holy, but once you take it off and bury it, in other words, separate it from God, then when you go back and retrieve it, it is of no value anymore. The other part of it could be is if it's underwear, as in boxer shorts, then what we're talking about is an editorial comment on the priesthood. That's the best way to say that. This is all by way of saying what's going on isn't good. I'm not at all clear what exactly the symbolism means. Those are a couple of ideas. They may be just completely wrong, or it may be some combination or something else. I, that's just sort of my best guess, if you will. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord. Even so I will spoil the people of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after, after other gods, to serve and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. This would sort of give credence to the Cumberbund idea. 12. You will speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? In other words, what kind of a parable is this? Every jar shall be filled with wine. The response is, Huh? Of course. That's what you do with a jar. Crazy prophet. 13. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land. The kings who sit in David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah starts off, every jar shall be filled with wine. Everybody looks at him like, what? And then God comes in and says, thus says the Lord, and this is what it means. Being filled with drunkenness is not a good thing. We see that several places in scripture where people are are made to stagger and be drunk and so forth. It's always an indication of the judgment of the Lord. In other words, things are not good when you're filled with drunkenness and staggering around. Verse 14, And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. So if you have jugs full of wine, which are not full of wine but are now full of drunkenness, and you bang them together, what happens to the jugs? They break. The idea here is, I am going to fill you with drunkenness, and then I'm going to take you and crack you together so that you're shattered and destroyed. 15. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flocks has been taken captive. 
This is Jeremiah speaking. He's warning them and asking them, telling them to repent. And if they don't, they will be taken captive. 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat. For your brutal crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. According to this commentary, they are not identified, but probably the king was Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, same guy. And the queen mother was Nehushta, the widow of Jehoiakim, who was his father. And Jeconiah, as most of you remember, that line is cursed. He was so wicked that God curses Jeconiah and says, your line's cut off, nothing good will come from you there. I think it's Chuck Missler that makes a teaching out of this, which is pretty good. The Messiah is to come from the line of David, and this guy is cursed that nothing will come from him. So you find that the line of Mary, in fact, goes through Nathan and not through this guy, which I thought was kind of interesting. Anyway, that's probably who the king and queen mother are, simply because they're the ones that were on the throne when the Babylonians took him into exile. It could be an earlier one, but probably not. Verse 20. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set his head over you, those whom yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. This may still be talking to the king and the queen mother. Certainly it's talking to Israel and its leadership. You know, this where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock, indicates that Israel is being gobbled up by the Babylonians as they come down. 21, the English standard is, what will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself had taught to be friends to you. Let me try another translation. Let me go switch over to the Tanakh. What will you say when they appoint as your heads those among you who you trained to be tame? So what's the sense of either one of those? First off, the idea of it is you guys have been the leaders. That's fixing to change. The people that are going to be set over you in the Tanakh, it's going to be people that you have suppressed. It could also be people from other nations around you. The point of the exercise here is there's going to be a change in regime. What isn't clear to me is who the new ruling class is going to be. It could be people that come in with the Babylonians, or it could be people who have formerly been suppressed and are now raised up. It could be your subordinates are now going to be put on top. I don't know. 22. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. And again, this idea of skirts lifted up, think in terms of a woman who is paraded through the streets with her skirt lifted up and her nether regions exposed for everybody to look at. That's the image there. It's by way of shame shame and humiliation. 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The idea here is you guys are so corrupt 
that for you to change and do good would be equivalent to an Ethiopian who is black changing his skin color or a leopard changing his spots. You're so far gone that the chances of you reforming at this point are in that category or in that league. 24. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out for you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and nayings, your lewd whorings in the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, how long will it be before you are made clean? The only thing I want to comment, it's all pretty straightforward. 25, this is your lot, the portion I have measured out for you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. And again, this is the theme all throughout this early part of Jeremiah, this idea that foreign gods are not trustworthy. They are not true gods in the sense that I was talking about, you know, the, the bridge that collapses is not a true bridge. These are not true gods. And when you trust in them, this is the result that you're going to get. Let's don't start 14 yet. Question, break in this meta discussion now. You guys want to keep going in Jeremiah, or have I made my point over and over and over again, and you're done listening to it? The thing I started this study out with is the idea that Jeremiah is telling us in God's words, A, how important truth is, B, what the consequences are of following the falsity, and how to tell the truth from the false. That's been my thrust as we've been going through this. So the question is, have we made the point? and we can move on to another study, or do you want to keep going in Jeremiah? Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.